Um, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, we are continuing our series on 20 key chapters of the Old Testament. Um, we're looking at different chapters in the Old Testament that outline the story of redemption um, and, and lead up to the coming of Christ. Uh, last week we looked at 1 Samuel 16, and, and that passage is about the anointing of David as king. Um, but what was significant about that anointing was the fact that God is the one who chose David to be king. He was not chosen by the people. The people had chosen Saul to be their king, but Saul was unfaithful, and he led God's people astray. He led Israel into judgment rather than into blessing. But God remembered his promise to his people. So he raises up David to be the king of Israel. He raises up the king that the people actually needed, not the one that they wanted. And he promised that David would lead his people to prosperity and peace. And to ensure that that happens, if you remember, God poured his spirit out upon David. And that empowered him and enabled him and equipped him to fulfill his calling as the new king. And we'll see in the passage just before us this morning that God was faithful. David did become king, and he did indeed lead his people to a time of prosperity and peace. And this is marked by the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem by David's son, King Solomon. This is a great event in the history of Israel. It's a time of great celebration for the people of God. And this passage helps answer a couple of important questions. Can the God of Israel, can God be known? Can God be trusted? These are fundamental, foundational questions to our faith. How would you answer them? Can you know God? Can you trust Him? If you struggle to believe that you can trust God, if you struggle to believe that God is good and wants what is best for you, if you struggle to believe that God knows you, and that he hears you, and that he listens to you, then hear his word this morning. I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Although we are going to be covering chapter 8 of Kings, I'm only going to read verses 22 through 30, because it's a very long passage. So this is the word of God, given to us in love, and every word is true. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David my father what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be opened night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall dwell there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. 
And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We know that it is inspired and authoritative, that it is absolutely true. And Lord, as we are reminded once again of this great event in the history of redemption, the building and dedication of your temple, a place where your name is known among your people, a place where you dwell intimately with your people. Lord, I pray that we would see uh, this morning that the fulfillment of all the promises listed in this chapter are found in Jesus, and that through Jesus we have access to you as our Father. Lord, help us see that more clearly today and be encouraged. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So I don't have time this morning to read the entire passage, so I, I want to summarize what happens at the beginning of chapter 8. Solomon, he, he gathers all the elders and leaders of Israel um, as they are preparing to take the ark and, and lead the ark into the temple, into the most holy place of the temple, the, the innermost part of the temple, which is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And all along the way, as they're leading this temple, the sacrifices are being made. Matter of fact, we're told that so many sacrifices are being made that they can't even count how many, uh, that they cannot be numbered. So this is a, it's a great celebration. This is something that the people were longing to see happen. It's a great time of celebration, but it is also a bloody affair. We're also reminded that the ark contains the two tablets of Moses. These are the tablets that contain the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses on the mountain. They represent not only the law of God, but they also represent the covenant that exists between God and his people. It's a reminder of the relationship that he has with Israel. And when the ark is placed in its place, we read in verses 10 and 11 this, A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now this cloud is is what's known as a theophany. This is a a place where God manifests himself physically on earth. God's presence here in this temple represents three things. It communicates three things to us. First, it communicates that the temple was approved by God. Solomon followed the blueprints that God had given him. He built it exactly the way God had planned. And so God approves of the building of the temple. Second, God's presence here in the temple is a testimony that God will be present with his people in their land as he had promised. It is a mark of his covenant presence among his people. It's a glorious event. As I said earlier, this is something the people were waiting for. He was present with them throughout the wanderings in the tabernacle, but that was never a permanent residence. It was a place that moved along with the people. And not only that, but it was a constant reminder to Israel that they were not yet in the promised land. And the reason why they weren't in the promised land is because they had disobeyed God and they hadn't trusted Him. So it was a reminder of their sin. And that brings us to the third truth that this cloud represents. Those wanderings, the wilderness wanderings, are now over. Israel is finally settled in the promised land. God has been faithful in keeping His promise to His people. And He is now with them in this temple. He is now with them in a secure and permanent way. And all of this really begs a question. Who exactly is this God? What can we know about him? 
Well, that brings us to the passage I read this morning, and this is where Solomon goes next. After the ark is brought into the temple, and the glory cloud fills the temple, Solomon praises God. He speaks words of doxology. We see this in, in verse 23. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you. Solomon, he focuses his attention, he focuses his his praise on three attributes of God, or three character traits. God is holy, his love is steadfast towards his people, and he is faithful. This is the God of Israel. This is the God that we have gathered before this morning. This is the God that we worship. God is holy. Everything that we read in this chapter provides us with a glimpse at the holiness and the glory and the majesty of God. The number of sacrifices that were required even to to bring the ark into the temple is a sign of His holiness. It's a reminder that the priests were walking on holy ground. It is a reminder that they are sinners and and they could not step foot on the ground without being cleansed. That atonement, a blood atonement was required. The streets of Jerusalem literally ran red with blood that day. It is as if the entire city was covered in blood. That the city was prepared for the presence of God as he descended upon that temple. Because he is holy. We read earlier that God chose to appear as a cloud and Solomon also describes his appearance as thick darkness. It's a picture of his glory and his holiness. And there's a paradox here. God is described as being invisible, but yet here he makes himself visible. He is infinite and omnipresent, and yet here he resides in a temple. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, describes this well. He says this, The cloud is visible, and so is a sign of God's presence, yet the cloud also conceals. They do not see Yahweh in the full blaze of his presence. The cloud both is Yahweh's glory and covers Yahweh's glory. It both reveals and conceals. The cloud and thick darkness signify that there is a certain hiddenness about God. There is much we cannot see and do not know. Though Yahweh does not show himself in a totally transparent way, he has made his will clear in the tablets of stone. The former suggests we cannot know him exhaustively, though the latter testifies that we can know him adequately. He satisfies your need for clarity, but not your passion for curiosity. God has chosen to make that which is invisible, which is himself, visible. He does this by taking on the form of a thick cloud of darkness. This is a sign of his glory, which is why the priest immediately leaves the temple when he enters. The cloud fills every inch of the most holy place. You see, God cannot be contained. He cannot be controlled. God cannot be put into a box of our own making. He is infinite. He is omnipresent. He is eternal. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is transcendent. We cannot fully understand Him. There are an infinite number of things about God that you cannot know and that you will never know. We need to acknowledge this. We need to accept this reality. You can never know God perfectly. You'll never be able to understand everything about who God is and about everything on on what He does. So there's an aspect of God, of knowing God, that's mysterious. There are things that you just can't know. 
But that does not mean, that does not mean that you can't know Him. God has chosen to reveal Himself in certain ways to His creation. He has chosen to reveal Himself in a certain way to you. He has revealed to us everything that we need to know about Him and everything that He expects of us. And so although you cannot know God fully, you can know Him adequately. You can know what's expected of you. So what are some of the things that we can know about God? What are some of the things that He has revealed to us about Himself? Well, there are lots of things that we can mention, but this passage highlights two important traits. First, God is loving. Second, He is faithful. Back in verse 23, Solomon praises God for showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. God is steadfast in His love for His people. He's steadfast in His love for Israel. And we need to understand that Israel has given God many, many opportunities not to love, him, love them. They've disobeyed Him. They've turned their backs on God. They have chased after other gods. They rejected Him as their king. They've desired things of the world more than they desired Him. They have not trusted Him. They have not believed in His word or His promises. And there are many other things that we could list. And yet, despite all of this, God still loves them. He still loves His people. His love is long-suffering. His love is steadfast because it is anchored to His own character. Therefore, God's love for His people will never waver. It will never falter. We see that here in the fact that God not only has kept His promises to His people, but He still desires to live with them, to, to be in this temple among them. He wants to be their God, and He wants Israel to be His people. And this is true for us. God's love towards you is steadfast. There is nothing that you can do to separate you from His love. Whatever you have done in your past, whatever sins you continue to wrestle with even today, whatever guilt and shame that you still carry with you that just weighs you down, none of that will keep God from loving you. Because God is love. And He is also faithful. Solomon spends much of this dedication service focused on what God has promised to do and how God has fulfilled those promises. God promised to deliver His people to the promised land. He promised to give them peace. He promised David that one of his sons would continue to reign on the throne as king. He promised His people that His name would be among them. He promised that He would be with them in their midst. And we see all of this being fulfilled in this passage. There's not a single promise that he has made to Israel that will not be fulfilled. And what was true in Solomon's day and age is still true for us today. There are no promises in this book. There are no promises in this Bible that will not one day be fulfilled. Do you believe that? God can be trusted. This is why Solomon says there is no God like you. You see, in, in Solomon's day and age, the, the nations had many gods. And these many gods would promise their people all sorts of things. But they could not be trusted to fulfill those promises. People would do all kinds of sacrifices. They would perform all kinds of rituals. They would do all sorts of things to try to appease their gods and to appeal to them. And they would do those things in the hope that their god would respond in some way, some positive way towards them. But it was really a, a shaky hope at best. Because they had no guarantee. 
They had no certainty that their God would respond in the right way. That their God would actually not disappoint them. And this is still true today. Now we may not have all kinds of gods in our culture the same way that Solomon did. But our culture still worships many gods. They're just different today. Our gods are things like money and fame and success, comfort, even ourselves. These are some of the gods that we worship today. And not one of them, not one of them can be trusted to deliver on what they promise. We have no guarantee that they will fulfill everything that they promise to do for us. But that is not true of Yahweh. God, He has all power and all authority. His word is always true. His promises can be trusted absolutely because God is faithful. And so this passage provides us with just a small glimpse of who God is. He is holy. He is steadfast and He is faithful. But what is truly remarkable, what is truly awe-inspiring is that this God has chosen to condescend to us. And that is where Solomon goes next. You see, he asks a very important and profound question, and we find this question in verse 27, which is this. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Will the creator of the heavens and earth, earth, will the infinitely glorious one, will this God dwell on earth? Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes God. He describes God as this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell on. God is infinitely glorious. He's infinitely majestic. And Solomon echoes this language at the end of verse 27 when he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That's why Davis goes on and he says, The words drip with our happy failure to get a grip on the massive majesty of God. This is our God. And that brings us back to Solomon's question. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Let that question linger in your hearts and your minds. Will the majestic, transcendent, infinite God Will he dwell on finite earth in a house made by human hands? Yes, he does. Don't miss the impact of this. God will dwell in this house. He will be in the temple. Now, this does not mean that God becomes less than who he is. It does not mean that he will no longer be omnipresent. But while continuing to be fully God, he will in some mysterious way also reside in this temple among his people. This is an act of condescension upon his part. So what are the implications of this? What can we get from this? It means that the transcendent, holy, glorious, infinite God will be available and accessible to his people. 
God is providing His people with a means to come to Him in a personal and intimate way. God is high and lofty, but He hears the prayers of the lowly and meek. This is truly a wonderful gift. It is only possible because God chose to provide His people with this means. He chose to condescend to His people as an act of mercy and love, making Himself available to them. The temple is a great gift to God's people. It's a place where God's name resides. It's a place where He dwells among His people. But the temple is only part of the answer to Solomon's question. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Well, the truly amazing answer is found in the Incarnation. The Gospel of John opens with this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then down in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Incarnation is God's greatest act of condescension. It's His greatest act of humiliation. Jesus is fully God. He is God in the flesh, and He dwelt among us. He is God dwelling on the earth. Paul describes Jesus this way in Colossians 1. He says, He is the image of this invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. This Jesus, the one who created all things, walked on this earth. The truth of the incarnation is staggering. The answer to Solomon's question is Jesus. But why does that matter? What difference does that make? Well, Hebrews 10, 19, and 20 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And the word that's used in Hebrews for the word opened is actually the same words translated from the Hebrew for the word dedicated. A new and living way to God was dedicated to us by Jesus. It is through him and his blood that we have access to God. Jesus is the one true mediator. After the temple was dedicated and God dwelt in the presence of the most holy place, God's people still didn't have direct access to him. There was a curtain that was put up that divided the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And only the high priest could enter the most holy place. Only the high priest could enter into God's presence. And he could only do that once a year. And he was required to make all sorts of sacrifices before he could enter because he needed to cleanse himself. He also needed to cleanse the people of God before he could enter on their behalf. Well, That's not true with Jesus. His flesh is the curtain. His blood is the sacrifice. He is the final, perfect mediator. He is our great high priest. And so through Jesus, you have full access to God. There are no sacrifices to be made. There are no hoops that you need to jump through. You have access to God right now because of Jesus. If you belong to him, there is nothing that prevents you from coming into God's presence, even now. Nothing can keep you from coming to him. Another pastor, Reed Hankin, said this, The one whom the highest heavens cannot contain has made himself accessible to our very own hearts. And that leads us to the rest of the passage. Solomon, he leads his people in a prayer of dedication for the temple. And his prayer is focused on the covenant relationship that exists between God and his people. It's particularly focused upon the mercy of God. And his prayer can be broken up into an introduction followed by seven petitions. 
For the sake of time, I, I can't go into detail of all the different petitions, but I do want to just highlight the main themes of this prayer and pay special attention to the last petition. The heart of these petitions is a plea to God to be available to his people. It's a plea to God to be accessible. They focus on access to God, that he would hear the prayers of his people if they pray to the temple or even if they pray towards the temple. Now, God is everywhere, and we can access him anywhere, but he makes this special accommodation to his people. The temple is a constant reminder that God is with them, that he is in their midst, that he's in covenant with them, and that he hears their prayers. That's true whether you can actually come to the temple and pray to him or whether you are in a distant land and you face the temple praying to him. We actually get an example of this in Daniel. If you remember, Daniel is found in his room praying out the window towards the temple. God is accessible. Another feature of this prayer is its focus on the covenantal relationship that exists between God and his people. That The heart of the covenant is simply this, that God is the God of his people and that his people are his people. So God is their God, they are his people. And the temple is a powerful reminder or testimony of this relationship. But it is also a relationship that comes with stipulations. If God's people would continue to trust in him, then he would bless them. However, if they turned on God, if they disobeyed him, then there would be consequences. You see, the covenant relationship consists of both covenantal blessings as well as covenantal curses. In this prayer of Solomon, these petitions, they cover some of the potential blessings that would come upon Israel if they remained faithful, if they continued to trust God. They would have prosperity, they would have peace, there would be justice in the land, and they would be a blessing to many nations. But these petitions also cover many of the potential curses that could come upon Israel if they were unfaithful. If Israel failed to trust God, if they disobeyed Him, then they would experience famine, persecution, defeat, and ultimately exile. So you see this whole temple dedication, it's not only a time of celebration, that God is with them and that He's going to bless them, but it is also a reminder of danger. That there was going to be consequences for breaking the covenant. And that leads us to the third component of these petitions. It's a cry for mercy. God loves His people. That is why there is consequence for their sin. These consequences are not only meant to be a warning to God's people that to, to obey, to follow, to continue to trust me. But the consequences themselves are actually an act of mercy on God's part. Now we don't like to talk about this. We don't like talking about consequences to sin. I know there have been many times, I'm sure none of you have experienced this yourselves, but I know there have been many times when I've had to discipline one of my sons and then they give you that look. Like, you are just an ogre. You are so mean. But it's the loving and right thing to do. And that is what God does often when we have to deal with consequences to our sin because they're designed to remind us of our need of Him. They're designed to remind us that we need God and they are designed to lead us to repentance. And when that happens, God will show us mercy and he will forgive. That is what Solomon prays. He prays that God will be true to his character. That God would show mercy and forgive his people when they turn back to him. 
to get us a glimpse of this, I want us to look at the, the final petition, and this starts in verse 46. And this really is the worst case scenario for Israel. Verse 46 says this, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Let me stop there. So Solomon, you can see here, understands the human heart. He understands that we are all sinners, that we will sin. He knows that Israel will sin against God. And in a case of, of bad, really bad disobedience, is, is in this case, the consequence to their sin is going to be exile. They're going to be taken captive. And so that is what Solomon prays. And he continues on, though, in verse 47, this. He says, Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you have given to their fathers, the city that they have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may show compassion on them. The prayer is that God will hear their plea, that God will hear their prayer, even though they are dealing with a significant consequence and they are captive in a foreign land. God is still with them. And here's the amazing thing, is that when the first Kings was actually written, the, the original readers of this book they were already in this condition. They had already disobeyed God and they had already been exiled. They were already captive. So this passage applies directly to the original readers of those letters and it's a powerful reminder to them that despite their great sin, God is with them and He hears them and He will show them mercy. It's a call for them to repent and to turn back to God because God is faithful and He loves His people with a steadfast love and He will show them mercy. Now, I suspect many of us have been to a graduation ceremony where there's been some kind of commencement address. And uh, most commencement addresses, you know, they vary in different ways, but at the heart of them, they're almost always the same. And they go something like this that you are wonderful. You are the best of the best. You are the cream of the crop. There's nothing wrong with you whatsoever. It is in your power to go and change the world. So go change the world for the better. Now, that's not bad. There are some good things in that. But it really is not an accurate picture of the human condition. That is not Solomon's commitment, con commencement. Solomon's commitment is this. You are sinners. You will sin. You will fail. You will fall short. Solomon understands the human condition. We will disobey God. We will need mercy. This passage reminds us all of our sin and our need for mercy. And the good news is that God is merciful. Jesus came to save sinners. He's established a new covenant in His blood, and we, are, we are, ourselves are unable to faithfully keep the covenant, but Jesus did. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the requirements and obligations of the covenant for you and for me. And therefore, as His people, we are in a blessed covenant state with our God. Now, this does not mean 
that there will no longer be consequences to your sin. But it does mean that when we do sin, we know that God is available and that God will hear your prayer and that God will show you mercy. Jesus, who is God dwelling with us, has made this possible to all who follow him. Jesus, he he took the curse of breaking the covenant, of us breaking the covenant. He took the curse of all of that upon himself. And he has made all of you who follow him perfect covenant keepers. In Jesus, you have perfectly kept the covenant. Not only that, but Jesus pours his spirit out upon his followers. And so we are all temples of the living God, which means God is with you right now. Wherever you find yourself, whatever condition you're in, if you follow Jesus, then God is with you. He hears your prayers. His love towards you is steadfast. You don't need to go to a temple. You don't need to clean yourself up first. You just need to turn to Jesus. He is your great high priest. And he awaits you with open arms. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you. For this word, we thank you for our great high priest, Jesus, who perfectly kept your law, who perfectly kept the covenant, and it is through him and him alone that we also are covenant keepers. For he has taken upon all the curses of the covenant upon himself. He took our sin upon himself so that we have indeed been cleansed, we have been forgiven, we've been made righteous, and we've been set apart as your people, and you've been given us your Holy Spirit to live within us. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that does not know or follow Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they come to know Him. I pray that today would be the day that they know that there is forgiveness found in no one outside of Jesus Himself. That they would be to cast their sins upon Him. And that they would come into relationship with with their Father through Jesus. Lord, for those of us who do know him, I pray that you would deepen our relationship with Christ, that we'd understand that we have full access to our Father because of Jesus. Lord, help us overcome our fear, our shame, our guilt, all those things that keep us away from him. Help us to come boldly and freely, knowing that he hears us, that he loves us with a steadfast love, and that he will be merciful and gracious towards us. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you continue to advance your kingdom to the ends of the earth. This morning, we want to lift up Ian and Heidi Fry. We thank you for the work that they are doing.